Monica McInerney's best-selling and award-winning books explore the resilience and fragility of family bonds, whether in a single mother family, as in her latest book, The Godmothers, or in earlier ones like the hugely popular Trip of a Lifetime, which introduced, as one critic put it, a huge-hearted and colourful family you'll want to call your own. Australian-born and Dublin-based when we're not in pandemic, she tops reader popularity polls on both sides of the world. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Monica talks about why she loves the drama of big families, she's from a big family herself, and about her first published book in her primary school library. She got her first paid writing job as a scriptwriter on a popular children's TV show when she was just in her teens and she's been writing in one form or another ever since. The show notes for all the links to Monica's books and her website can be found on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Drop by there, leave us a comment or suggestion for who you'd like us to interview next. We'd love to hear from you and we always try and reply promptly. But now... Here's Monica. Hello there, Monica, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hello, Jenny. Thanks very much for talking to me. Look, you're in South Australia. I'm in New Zealand. We're both rather lucky in terms of what's going on in the rest of the world. But you've been published regularly in in Australia's Booktopia Top 10 as one of the most popular authors in that country. And you've made emotional women's stories your chosen area of expertise. As one reviewer put it, you explore the resiliency and fragility of family bonds. What drew you to that territory, do you you think, initially? I think it's because I grew up as the middle child in a family of nine, Jenny, to be honest. I've got six brothers and sisters and I'm the middle child. And I grew up in in a small country town called Clare in the Clare Valley of South Australia. So I think from the earliest I can remember, I was surrounded by people, by drama, by comedy. We lived in a, my father was the railway station master and we lived in the station master's house and it was always visitors and, you know, friends, families, relatives visiting. And uh, so constant squeaking of the gate as people arrived with stories to tell, you know, some news, some drama, um, a funny thing to share. And that really, really concentrated my mind, I think, even as a child, that how interesting families can be. And in the way that Agatha Christie always said that she said all of her books in um, in small villages because she said they were microcosm of the whole world. For me, families are that, in that you know, you're, you're, you're introduced to so many different elements of, of being a human being under the family roof, uh, you know, grief and love and, and sometimes bitterness, sometimes difficulties, you know, sibling rivalry, and all of that is so such rich pickings for for a novel, I think. So I trace it all back to my childhood. Fantastic. Now, The Godmothers, which is your most recent book and the one we'll focus on today, is Eliza's story. She's the sole child of a single mother who, though troubled, creates a magic world for her daughter. And the outside reader can see that 
this magic world that is related through Eliza's eyes is also a little bit, you know, turbulent on the on the surface. But she's also got safety and eye oversight from two remarkable godmothers who are the godmothers of the title. You've said that an event in your own family initially inspired this particular story. Can you tell us about that event? I certainly can. I mean, one of the many things I'm fascinated with family life is the secrets between generations. And I've always been very aware of that. I was an eavesdropping child and I'm an eavesdropping adult, to be honest, and a very curious child and a curious adult. And I grew up very conscious that I had a missing aunt in my family tree. And that was my father's half-sister who drowned um, at the age in her 40s on the family farm. Um, in northern South Australia about eight years before I was born. So she was in her 40s and she drowned in an underground water tank. And it was one of those stories that was never discussed in front of the next generation. And I would, you know, if you walk into a room and you knew they were talking about it and everybody would go quiet. And I asked my father about it um, once and he said he didn't know, you know more as far as he was concerned it had been a drowning, it had been an accident. But there was always that mood that there was more to it. You know, was it suicide? Was it something more sinister? And I had only one godmother. I didn't have a godfather because I grew up in a big Irish Australian Catholic family and, you know, my brothers and sisters all have a godmother and a godfather. My godmother was very, very religious. So mum and dad thought they couldn't match her with somebody, you know, to, to share the role. And I always believed that my godmother knew more about this mysterious death of this missing aunt, but I could never get her to share any details with me, no matter how much I asked her as I became an adult. And I think those two elements came together in terms of, you know, what if the godmother in your life was the the custodian of of some very important family secrets? For me, of course, the missing aunt, that was just curiosity. I wondered about this woman, what what had happened, what had her life been like? But as is often the case with, with my novels, you add on, you know, what if, you know, what if the godmother's new secrets that were absolutely integral to your development as a human being, to your safety, to your idea of yourself. And that's where the the novel came from. Yes, and that's fabulous because Eliza's, both her mother and her godmothers, keep a lot of information from her, including the identity of her father. And at the end, there is still one thing that the godmothers concealed from her and you you introduced the interesting question of is it sometimes best to lie and as a reader going through it you know you kind of identify with Eliza and you feel indignant because there's hints that they are concealing something that they're not telling her and you feel very much indignant on her behalf and then right at the end when you realize what this information is and you realise what their decision is, and I won't spoil the story by saying what that is, you actually agree with the final decision that they make, and you make a decision about that. Can you talk about it without giving the actual storyline away, do you think? (laughs) I can, yeah. I know you have to be so careful of spoilers, especially with the godmothers, because it is full of um, twists and turns and moral dilemmas and secrets and lies um, the whole way through. (laughs) Very much. I. um, That's one of the things also, Jenny, I'm really, really interested as a human being and also as a writer and as a reader really is is the secrets that we all keep from one another and and the the moral dilemmas that are involved in our relationships with other human beings really i think in that you know you can it's can, it's very easy to hurt people by telling the truth and you know it can be as not superficial but you know as as casual as 
telling somebody that they look terrible in the in an outfit that they've spent ages, you know, preparing, or in in the sake of the story of the godmothers. If the godmothers were to reveal to Eliza, their goddaughter, everything they know about her troubled mother's life, everything they know about their own relationship with her and, and all the, the very many layers of it, how devastating that could be to her. And so they have to make a decision because nothing is ever black and white. Everything is grey in terms of our, our relationships with one another, I believe. So it's, you know, it's, that's, it, it's a book of moral dilemmas, absolutely. Mm. And the other judgment call you make is that if a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counsellor was reading it, they would probably put both Eliza's mother and the other character, the boy Sullivan, into one of those personality profiles that have a label and yet you very much hold back from making a judgment calls or even you describe the way they behave but you withhold totally any judgment call about why that might be or what what it really is all about don't you you leave the reader to very much make up their own mind and that's really that was a very very deliberate um decision on my part as the writer of this novel and Sullivan the the 12 year old boy that you mentioned Eliza meets him on a plane when they're flying she's flying from Australia to Edinburgh where she's going to meet up with her two godmothers and she's sat next to this this young fella who's um who's as I said 12 going on about 112 and very articulate young man and 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 very unusual character and certainly Eliza's mother is is a troubled person but full of love full of drama full of adventure but for every high there's a low and indeed I could have said with both of those characters you know here's what they probably would be diagnosed with if that was to be the you know the way I was going to be writing it but I didn't I again to go back to that there's nothing black and white about the way human beings are everybody has shades of personality shapes in, in themselves, I think. And also what I wanted to really explore uh, in this novel, as in all of my novels, is the way people react to other people's behaviour and whether that behaviour is because of a particular personality order or disorder or because it's people are behaving out of selfishness or fear or anger or vulnerability, all the things that make us react in difficult ways with one another. That's what really interests me as a writer. And so that's what I've done in this novel. They're, they're tricky characters, both of those. I think everybody in the novel is actually because no no human being is straightforward. But, you know, G- Eliza's mother, Jeannie, would have been a very difficult friend and the godmothers her two best friends since school are very conflicted in their love and their their relationship with her you know they're they're very protective of her but they're exasperated by her and certainly Sullivan the young boy would not be the easiest of sons to have either but he makes a really excellent friend for Eliza when she needs one and and people react to him in different ways throughout the book as well because you know and some, as one of the characters says, what, that, that kid's a weirdo, perhaps, but, but he's also got enormous charm and that's what I like to write about, just the way we react to people um, who behave in ways that we don't expect. Yes, I love the dialogue between Sullivan and Eliza and I really think that by not labelling him, you give him the space to just be himself, which just makes the book that much more fun in a way. You know, yeah, might not happen in real life, but it's lovely to be able to see it happen in a book, yes, yeah. 
I've been quite spoiled, actually, is that um, I've got lots of young nephews myself. And where I, I usually live in, in Dublin, I'm sure you and I will talk about, yes. <laughs> about um, moving between countries. And in our street, there were lots of you know, the city, inner city kids um, are very kind of wild and free in, in Dublin in a way that they're not so much in Australia. And uh, and I had lots of friends. You know, I'm in my, um, I'm 56 now, but um, like of about 10, 11 and 12, these kids that would just come and play because I was home all day writing in my office you know which in my um, office looked out over in Dublin Street so I was like a curiosity to them also because I had this different accent and I got to know lots all of their friends and I to be honest Sullivan's I think he's an amalgam of all, a lot of those kids so I have seen it in real life I reckon what you know that, that kind of particular friendship you can have with really unusual kids. That's gorgeous look that does bring us on to talking a little bit more widely about the rest of your literary output because it's huge you've written this is your 13th novel that's right. And as you mentioned, you were born in South Australia, but you're married to an Irishman. Now, I presume you might have even been tracing your family roots back to Ireland when you met him. I don't know. But you now divide your time between the two countries and your books very much reflect that kind of peripatetic lifestyle, don't they? They often do spread themselves between those two places. They sure do, Jenny. And yes, again, that comes from my own life experience. I often say that I don't write um, factually autobiographical books, but I certainly write geographically autobiographical <laughs> books. And I write emotional, emotionally autobiographical books. So I draw on my own life, you know, in, in lots of ways, as every writer does. You know, we all, we all have to draw on all the material that's inside us. I, as I mentioned, I grew up in the Clare Valley of South Australia, and I'm the great granddaughter of Irish immigrants on both sides. And they're, they're from in both sides of my mother's and father's side. We're from County Clare in Ireland. I actually met my Irish husband. He had emigrated to Australia back in 1988 and uh, and we met when he was working on a newspaper in Melbourne. He's a journalist. Uh, and he was already going back to Ireland. So um, I went back with him, you know, rather than a kangaroo king key souvenir he brought me back to Ireland <laughs> and and since then we've been moving back and forth between um, our two countries he's one of a big family too and so we've you know we've we're very used to you know packing up our lives and spending time back and forth he was a big traveler I've traveled a lot as well so I really know that feeling of arriving in a new city or country some of it I think from being you know coming from a small country town and if I wanted to experience as big as life as I can which I did want to and still want to I you know I left our, our small country town at the age of 17 and I was living in London by the time I was 19 and I've lived you know all around Australia and traveled widely as I said and I'm very interested in the impact that travel has on on a person that sense of excitement you get when you go to a new place the opportunities that open up the way you can reinvent yourself if you care to but also the fact that you bring yourself with you there's a you know terrific saying that skies change not cares for those who cross this cross the skies and I think that's kind of underpins a lot of my novels too that people do travel for lots of different reasons but they bring themselves with them and sometimes they find what they're looking for sometimes they find unexpected happenings and for, again for me as a novelist that's that's really rich pickings. Yes how has all of that been affected by what we're going through at the moment? 
Oh, gosh. I tell you, it's the funniest thing. I'm talking to you from Adelaide in South Australia, which is where I grew up. And I came here in March last year for a month. So I try and get home to Australia once a year for a month to see my mum, who's in her 80s, and all my brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. And uh, I was due to fly back two days before the... um, pandemic was declared and all the international borders were closed. And so I've basically been here since. <laughs> so I had nine months which I did where I didn't get to see my husband. He was he'd stayed home in Dublin while I was you know here meeting publishers and finishing researching and writing and editing the Godmothers. So we turned into pen pals for nine months because you know the world closed down and, and I couldn't travel and he couldn't travel. Then the circuitous um, chain of events meant he was able to apply for a travel exemption. So he arrived in Australia in in November. So we were reunited, not in Dublin, but here in, in South Australia. But all that while I was editing and working on The Godmothers, which has people, you know, flitting back and forth between Australia and Scotland and getting on ferries and going to Ireland and all sorts of travel. And it was very strange to be editing and reading these this, these scenes, you know, people on a plane so close to each other, no masks, you know, <laughs> walking through crowds. And it felt like fantasy more than fiction sometimes. So I, I'm really, really interested to see how it's going to affect my novels in the future, whether I always set my novels in 2019 from now on, because I, I my novels have people flying all over the world. And also, I don't think anybody will ever want to read about a pandemic. So I, I don't know if I want to put it in my, my books. That's right. It is. It's, it's, it's it creates a few little conundrums going forward. It also introduces the the thought about uplifting stories. Your stories are uplifting and you write about what one person described as colourful and huge-hearted families that you want to call your own. There's very much a good vibe in them. Do you think it's important to have that uplift in these times as well? I do very much. It's not, again, that's not a deliberate decision. I think a a lot of the, all of my novels, the 13 novels, and I've written a lot of short stories as well, they reflect my worldview in the way that, you know, I'm sure, you know, your novels would reflect your worldview. Every writer brings their, their, the way they see the world into their stories. And as for me as a human, I need to feel hope. I need to feel that even though we're all going through bleak times and I certainly have in my own life had, you know, times of deep sorrow and deep sadness and and gloom and bleakness, but something, there's always been a tiny light that, that, you know, get through this, all things will change. You know, if you get through this, there will be brighter days. And and that has proved right to me over and again in my own life and then and I that's what I bring into my stories. I don't write happy endings in my novels because I put my characters through the ringer each time. They that I, I explore within the under the the family roof and through each of my novels. The the darkest of human experiences, I think, you know, great grief, great, you know, results of accidents and and terrible decisions and and but what I want to do is see how people are shaped by those elemental things that happen to them and and keep going. And so what I always say is that I write hopeful endings uh, and all my novels have hopeful endings in that you can think, God, that person, that character has really been through it, but I think they're going to be okay. And I always write epilogues because I love epilogues as a reader. I love, you know, when you finish a story and sometimes if it just stops at that and you go, yeah, but then what happened a year later? And so all of my novels reflect that desire I have. And I, I introduce my readers to here they are a year later and look, I think they're going to be all right. Yeah, well, that's great. That's wonderful. Look, turning from talking about the specific books to your wider career, tell us a bit about what 
your life was like before you became a full-time writer. I'm not quite sure how long ago that was, but did you have experience that you brought to your work when you started writing? Absolutely, Jenny. I mean, I've, I've this year marks my 21st year of being published. So I've been, you know, all my books have been writing and published, but I've been writing all around words and stories all my life. Again, as I said, starting with my my childhood in this big, noisy, you know, family with full of full of stories and comedy and drama. My first job out of school was as a wardrobe girl on a very well known Australian television show called Here's Humphrey Kids TV Show, and I was originally wardrobe girl for this. This it was a man in a bear suit basically a very kind of a real tradition in children's television here in Australia and then I began writing TV scripts for that which was fantastic experience now I think about it in terms of writing for children you've got to keep the action going it's got to be lots of colour lots of movement and my books to this day are very fast moving and full of dialogue ironically Humphrey B. Bear who was the, the the bear in this children's TV show didn't speak but all the adults around him did so but it still had to have lots of you know very big um and fast storylines. I moved to London where I worked in the music industry and writing media releases and advertising copy. I moved back to Australia, worked in the music industry in Sydney for a while, again, writing articles and media releases. And then I began working in publishing and I worked in publishing for 10 years. I worked for Penguin Books, who are now my publisher in Australia, in Melbourne, um, and where I worked with authors including Raoul Dahl and the wonderful Margaret Mahi from um, New Zealand. I toured with her, which was incredible experience experience. And then I met my husband, moved to Ireland and, and worked as a book publicist there and, uh, and worked with incredible authors like I met Harold Pinter, Tony Morrison, all sorts of amazing authors. Tim Winton I'd met as well, Carol Shields. And so I spent a lot of time listening, talking to authors. And in a way, I think that was fantastic experience in terms of almost like doing a writing course by osmosis, yeah. because I sat in on lots of interviews like I'm doing now, hearing the way people write. Um, hearing that you know so much about writing and longevity is is determination and dedication turning up to your desk you know day after day and a lot of those interviews that I sat in on when I was a publicist for 10 years have been fantastic grounding for me to keep me going I know you know what, what basically what goes on behind the scenes to be an author and along that way as well in my career I worked as a, a, a temp I've worked um, in arts festivals I've been a hotel cleaner a waitress a kinder gym instructor lots of other jobs a public relations journalist and all of those if anybody has ever read all 13 of my novels every single one one of those careers has popped up <laughs> in my books in some way. And I always say I, I teach a little bit now. I do some writing courses in Ireland and, and I always, you know, like to tell the students, you know, nothing is ever wasted. You know, if you think, oh, I can't be a writer because all I've ever been is, you know, worked in a morgue. And I always want to say you are a perfect person to be a writer because people would want to know what happens in a morgue or, you know, are you a paramedic or are you, you know, working in a, in a, in a boutique or whatever job you do, you're coming around coming up against, you know, people and stories. So I've, I've drawn on every single job I've ever yeah, had. Yeah, Oh, that's fantastic. And so what was the kind of trigger that made you decide you wanted to write a book rather than publish, I mean, publish and market other people's? What, what? I think I, I had always wanted to be a writer. I actually wrote my first book when I was eight at my, my primary school in the Clare Valley and uh, it was a school holiday project and I loved writing that. It was a very small, simple story with, you know, illustrations, but a wonderful thing happened with that book. The school librarian asked if she could borrow it when we went back to school and she covered it and catalogued it and put it on the shelves at the school library. So the whole time I was at that primary school, a book I had written 
was on the shelves. Wow. The only one that ever borrowed it. But, um, <laughs> but I was very, very conscious that there it was. And, you know, and we'd copied the books. So it had a, you know, cover and it had the ISBN at the back and the little biog and everything. And also I just adored book. I, everything I do as a writer is because I'm a reader. And so I was writing stories, you know, I was writing children's TV stories and even writing media releases and articles was about working with words and putting information across mm. and mm. and shaping the way that I see the world into, you know, into other stories, mm. I suppose. Mm. And, in fact, ironically, it was only John, my husband and I moved to Tasmania in 1996 and up until then I'd been working in book publishing for more than 10 years, working with all these writers, and that was fulfilling my longing to be around stories and storytelling, you know, just working with authors all the time and hearing what they had to say about their inspiration and their working life, etc. And when we moved to Tasmania, there were no jobs in publishing because there wasn't really, a, you know, a publishing industry there. And I missed it, Jenny. I missed that feeling. And one day I borrowed the laptop from work, and this is now, you know, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, and thought, I wonder... I wonder, could I write a story? And at that stage, it was the magazine. You know, I was really interested in, I loved reading magazines. And, you know, often there was a five-minute fiction at the back of magazines and just with a twist in the tail. And I'd read one in The Dentist. And I thought, I wonder, could I write one of those? And I sat down this one night in Tasmania with a borrowed laptop and had a tiny idea for a short story and I wrote it. And I can still remember it, the feeling I can feel it now, even the, you know, the hairs at the back of my neck standing up. This story poured out of me. I borrowed the laptop the next day. I had another story, another story, another story. Within about three months, I'd written about 50 short stories. It was like all these stories had been building up, all these other jobs I'd been doing, all these writers I'd listened to being interviewed. And now I was away from publishers and away from talking to authors. I needed to tell those stories myself. And that's how it started. Short stories for me, many, many, many many rejections and then in very quick succession three got published in magazines in Australia and that gave me the confidence to start my first novel and that's 20 that was published 21 years ago. Fantastic story that's wonderful. Look there's a perennial question I like to ask everyone is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you'd attribute to your success? Yes to repeat again it's because I'm a reader. Yeah. I still read two or three books a week. Every writer I know, and I've got great writer friends in Ireland and Australia and America, we're all huge readers. We're interested in what other people are writing. We're interested in how they did it. We read first and foremostly enthusiastic as enthusiastic readers, being lost in a story, can't put that book down. Then, But we also read as writers going, how did they do that? I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd had that idea. Why have they kept me turning the pages? Or sometimes if you feel that your attention is, you know, not, not, quite as gripped as it might be why isn't it working that's the beautiful thing like some people sometimes say to me you know because I, I didn't go to university I started work as a 17 year old when I got that job I, I had taken a gap year from uni and um, and then got the job in children's television and never went back but for me um, a library a bookshop is my university because every single book you pick up mm. to read as a writer teaches you about writing mm. I read every genre. I read children's books. I'm writing children's books now. I read poetry. I read non-fiction, everything I can get my hands on, classics, you know, contemporary fiction. And that's why I'm a writer. That's why I'm able to be a writer yeah. because I'm a reader. Yeah. I have heard it said that you actually learn more from books that don't work quite as well as the ones that do work really well. I, you know, I think that's sometimes interesting that to, to look at it that way. Yeah. Look, um, turning to Monica as reader, because we are starting to come to the end of our time together, 
The series is called The Joys of Binge Reading because it's aimed at readers and it's hopefully introducing our listeners to new authors and books that they might not have discovered yet. Um, What do you, you say your taste is very wide. What are you reading at the moment and what would you like to recommend to our listeners? I'm going through a real crime and thriller stage at the moment. I love, because I don't, I, I mean, funnily enough, actually, I think The Godmothers is is actually a family mystery because Eliza's on the search for some truth about her her mother and also the father that she's never met. So that's what, that's the pull through the book to find out, you know, the, the, the solving of this mystery, the family mystery. But in terms of my own reading, I love crime novels I, I because I, I don't think I could write them, you know, the little twists and the turns and the red herrings and all that kind of thing when there's something, you know, it's about a dead body somewhere. So I've just been reading, and particularly because I'm here in Australia unexpectedly for such a long time, I've been reading uh, a lot of the novels by a crime writer here called Gary Disher, and he has a series of books with a detective called Hirsch, and I've loved those. They're actually set in South Australia, not far from where I grew up, so I I get double pleasure out of reading his novels because I can recognise the street, the roads he's talking about and the hills and the scenery and the weather, and as well as really intricately plotted crime novels too. So I've really enjoyed him. Of course, in terms of children's books, I'm about to start rereading all the Harry Potter books. I I read those. I'm not great at, um, I didn't want to have to wait a year each time when for J.K. Rowling to finish them. So after I read the first one all those years ago, I thought I can't bear to, you know, to have to read it and then wait a year. So I didn't read any of them until she'd written all of them. And then I just took to the bed for three weeks and just read the whole lot. <laughs> so I'm kind of thinking about doing that again actually just really because I love that immersing yourself in a whole fictional world I also love the Vera books and Cleves books I've been reading those and watching the TV series you know again just that world of crime novels John Le Carre I love I love spy novels too so I've read a lot of his the Smiley books you know some of those is not a not a series as such but but you, you meet the same characters uh, at different stages so yeah so it's, I'm, I'm, on a, I'm on a crime binge at the moment fantastic Michael Robotham is one of the people that we've had on oh, the show and yeah I love his, his thrillers are great aren't they really really good oh they're fantastic mm-hmm. but, yeah, I, I have to read his in the daytime because I get really spooked by his so <laughs> <laughs> I can't get to sleep <laughs> Look, circling around and looking back down the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything you'd change? And if so, what? I don't think so, Jenny. I I think that's a really interesting philosophical question in lots of ways, you know. And I, I have to say no, I think. I mean, I've had books where I started which didn't work out and I had to go back to the, you know, back to the start. Even before The Godmothers, I had spent two years working on another novel during a very sad time in my, you know, my family in Ireland's lives. And I discovered that much of the grief and, and homesickness I was feeling had gone into that book. And after two years of writing it and spending every day on it, I realised that that book wasn't for publication. That was a book I had needed to write. To, to sort through all these very sad, difficult feelings that I was going through. And that book is, you know, is sitting just on my laptop in, in, in Dublin. But I don't regret a day that I spent working on that book because, um, as I said, I, that book didn't need to be read by anybody else, but I needed to write it. Uh, and because I wrote that book, because I worked through a whole lot of other feelings, I was able to then write The Godmothers because it had almost cleared lots of layers of... of 
feeling so I could find other things underneath it. So I think if you, I was to change anything along the way of my experience as a, as a human and as a writer, I wouldn't be where I am today. I'm interested, I'm in the early stages of a couple of new books at the moment, and I'm really interested in what I'm uncovering. And I think that's because I've been through what I've been through. And if I was to change one of those elements, the whole the whole castle might fall down. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting hearing you say about, you know, you're now working on two books. It sounds a little bit as if you might be the sort of writer who starts with an idea but then follows it through rather than a big outliner. Is, Is that how you work? It is, Jenny, yeah. I'm not a plotter. What I do is I'm a thinker, I'm a preparer, but I'm not a plotter. I spend um, months before I write any of my novels thinking about my my characters, thinking about my fictional family, thinking about where they live, who gets on with who, just their normal lives, what they work at, what shaped each of them, what their sibling relationship is like, what their mother-daughter, you know, what what the, the makeup of the family is, like the godmothers, for example, it's a tiny, the smallest of possible families, a single mother and her daughter. But I've written books that have about six members of the family and five members and all girls and mixture and, you know, all the different shapes that a family can take. And then once I know those fictional people very, very well, I haven't written a lot of it down. It's 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 when I'm daydreaming, it's when I'm imagining in the middle of the night or walking or, and then I decide on what I call an emotional explosion which I throw into the middle of that fictional family and that's when the story takes off for me that's when I start writing I know everybody very well and I'm I then it takes off it's me working out how they all react to that 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 explosion if you like sometimes in my novels the explosion has happened say 10 years earlier and but the shockwaves are still there sometimes I, I write about the family and then, you know everything's going fine everything's normal and then in the first chapter bam this this great big thing happens and how are they all going to cope? Uh, Because that's what interests me. How do people, how are people shaped? How resilient are people? How do people react differently because of the way they've been brought up, because of their personalities to what um, happens to them? And that's when I then, I write seven days a week. I I make, I I aim for 2,000 words a day. The first draft can be very, very long, 200,000 words sometimes, but then down the whole story is, and sorry, interesting sentence construction then, the whole story is down, (laughs) but it starts with knowing all my characters very well and then that explosion that I mentioned. But you probably don't know how it ends. You have to then... Never. No, I didn't. I don't. And in The Godmothers, as I said, Eliza is in search of the father that she's never met and knowing that the Godmothers are keeping secrets and how much they know and not know. And when I began that book, I didn't know who her father was. And so I had to, I had to discover as she discovered along the way and I get a lot of um, um, emails and messages from readers which I really love to receive and people are saying you kept taking me by surprise the whole way through this book I didn't know you know this happens and that happens and I write back to them and say it's because I didn't know what was going to happen so every time I feel a big emotion when I'm writing one of my novels you know be it surprise or be it you know being amused or being moved and crying and then I often find out that's when readers get in touch and said oh you know I really laughed then and I really got very upset at that stage it echoes what I feel when I'm writing it that's a really lovely thing to think that the you know the pictures that were in my mind when I was writing it all the emotions I was feeling through the magic of writing and reading gets transferred into another person's um, mind and imagination I love that side of writing it sounds like you and Michael Robotham have got a lot in common because he writes seven days a week as well including he tells Christmas Day and he is exactly like you he doesn't know how it's going to end even with those really twisty plotty books that he does he just 
basically lets the characters tell him what's going to happen. So, yeah, it's remarkable. Oh, I find find that amazing when I hear crime writers saying that because I've listened to Jane Harper, you know, the wonderful mm. Jane Harper mm. who wrote The Dry and um, Force of Nature and Survivors, mm. and she plots hers absolutely intricately yeah. before she writes. Yeah. And so she knows in everything that's going to happen in every chapter. And I have a, a great author friend in Ireland called Sinead Moriarty, and she does the same thing. She knows absolutely before she starts writing what's going to happen. And she and I meet often talk about our books in progress. And I say, how can you write when you know what's going to happen? You know, why would you want to? And she says, how can you write when you don't know what's going to happen? <laughs> I think Michael wrote often, but the idea of a crime novelist not knowing who did yeah. it, um, I love that, you know, <laughs> Like he'd have to must he surely must have to go back at the end to you know to plant some clues. He might do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've you've alluded to it beautifully, but tell us what is next for Monica the writer? The next 12 months, what do they hold in store? Yeah, well, I'm working on two new adult novels. I'm working on a smaller project, and um, which I can't talk about too much. I, I find I find I get very secretive about books in, in progress just because they're so fragile yes. and and I need to keep them a bit special and, and keep that kind of yeah. feeling that there's something magical happening. But I'm I'm writing it. It's a, a very, it's a book that has no travel in it, interestingly enough, going back to what we were saying earlier, in the way that the pandemic and the, the way we've all been locked down and, and staying still is going to affect so much creativity and so much subject matter. And this book's just set in one very small area. And I'm sure that's me responding to, mm. you know, what mm. what's happened. Mm. But I have um, also started writing children's novels and um, my first children's book for 10-year-olds is a chapter book and that's coming out being published in Australia and New Zealand in October, November this year and that's called Marcy Gill and the Caravan Park Cat and it's set in a uh, kind of an alternative caravan park run by this sort of family of hippies who call themselves hippies and it's all through the eyes of a 10-year-old and her grandmother's cat and I have had so much fun writing that series. I'm working on the second book at the moment. It's full of magic and family and childhood memories and it's and yeah I absolutely love writing that and it's got illustrations too I'm working with a beautiful illustrator called Danny Snell who's and that's been a first for me to see he's brought all my characters and these settings to life through illustrations in this chapter book so I'm working away on that so lots of ideas still. That's wonderful look you mentioned you enjoy hearing from your readers where can they find you online? Oh, I love it. Yeah, if anybody's listening that they want to ever get in touch after they've read the, my books, I'm very active on Facebook um, and on Instagram. And it's me that does both of those pages. And I get back to everybody as quickly as I can. I post a lot about some, like the, not my writing, own writing process, again, saying that I'm, you know, because I do keep that quite private until I feel that the book is as ready as it can be for, you know, for other people to read about it. But because I'm a big, big reader, I do lots of posts about other books that I'm reading and loving. I invite other authors onto my page and do giveaways of my books and other people's books and my my hobby is nature photography I do a lot of walking and I find that when I've been really in my own head and really intricately untangling or tangling plots to be out and about with my camera just taking you know details of, of nature and sometimes just close-ups of flowers and leaves and I do a lot of galleries on my my um, social media of of beautiful things that I've seen on my travels and, and walks so I'm very active in it and people get in touch with me via that and also my website and I love hearing from people and, and always get back in touch as, as soon as I possibly can. It's lovely we'll have show notes for this podcast and we'll have links to all of those things when it goes up so 
we'll make sure that those are all included. Look, Monica, thank you so much. It's been fantastic talking to you. I almost feel like I've made a new friend just across the ocean. It's lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. You have made a new friend and it's been gorgeous <laughs> to talk to you too. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.